Over the centuries and millennia, there were quite a number of men who would be king. They ascended to the throne by various different means. Some, like King David, was appointed by God and anointed king by one of God's prophets. A usurping successor of his was King Herod, who ruled Judea during the time of the birth of Christ. He acquired power over Israel by the careful and generous use of assassination. He murdered his way to the throne, eliminating all possible competitors. And once in power, he kept up the practice to eliminate any challengers, anyone that he would perceive to be a threat to his power. Included on that unfortunate list were members of his own immediate family, his sons, even his own wife, with whom he's reputedly very much in love. He had her murdered under the mere suspicion that she was plotting against him. The last of his sons he would kill would die only five days before Herod's own death, a hideous one. Centuries later, a king would ascend to the throne on the death of his father. He would be King Louis IX of France. He would be canonized a saint. It's rather remarkable that you would have a nation that would consent to be ruled by a man of deep faith and unbending moral conviction, a saint. We can, cannot quite make that claim for the kings we have today that we elect. They haven't quite measured up, unfortunately. But then when you look at the kind of people that bring them to power and consent to be ruled by them, it's a give and take. Napoleon, another king of France, if you will, extended to power after the revolution deposed the rightful king Louis the Sixteenth, and he would uh, reap his own havoc on his country. Incidentally, about Louis, the one who was beheaded during the uh, reign of terror of the French Revolution, the propaganda would have you believe that he was a flippant, selfish, and self-indulgent cretin. Not quite. And his queen was not the frivolous, uh, flippant. Lassie that you might think she was. I had a few opportunity a few years ago to attend a requiem mass for King Louis, which was at St. Anne's Church in Manhattan. And the homilist at one point in the sermon read Louis's last will and testament as he was in prison awaiting execution, a remarkable document, in which he begins by professing his Catholic faith he forgives all of his persecutors from the bottom of his heart. And then he bequeaths his, his only remaining earthly possession, which was his watch. And they killed him. What a crime. Our own kings are, that was a bit of a sidetrack there, but our own kings are elected to office, usually for four years at a time. It's not unfair to call them kings, because that's basically what they are, with the difference being that they enjoy powers that medieval kings never even dreamed of. Kingship can be acquired by appointment, inheritance, election, 
usurpation, revolution, or, or whatever. Some men have, have risen to the throne rather reluctantly, realizing that in, that in accepting this post, they would bringing, be bringing on themselves greater responsibility and terrible answerability. Others pursued royal power for the sake of their own glory, their own aggrandizement, and perhaps their own enrichment. But there is one who did not have to acquire the office of kingship, and that is Christ. He was not king by appointment or election or inheritance. He is king from all eternity. Kingship, after all, is not a human invention. It is something God has claimed for himself in Christ. And because he is our king, we owe him our loyalty, our love, our obedience, our very lives. Should we be asked to sacrifice those for our king, then we should do so without reluctance, without hesitation. Because after all, here is a king who is God and who sacrificed himself for us. He is certainly not in it for his own enrichment. He is in it for our salvation. The extent of Christ's kingly power is universal. No one is exempt. Nothing is left out. Paul makes it very clear in today's gospel. For in him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominations or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and in him. Now you'll notice the way this is phrased. First he says, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominations, or principalities, or powers. These are the members of the spirit world, the angels, both good and bad. They are under his kingly power. They must be totally obedient to him or suffer the eternal consequences of their arrogance, as do the fallen angels. And then he lowers it, all things... Um, all things were created by him and in him, all things, that's this world, and we ourselves are his creatures. And through baptism, we have become children of God. He is therefore our king, whether we like it or not. No one in the world, whether Catholic or non-Catholic, pagan or whatever, is outside of the rule of Christ the King. All are bound, as far as they realize, they are bound to obey him, to revere him. If we choose to reject Christ as our king, then vengeance will be meted out to us most severely. You will recall that one of the parables that Christ uh, related to those, to his listeners, concerned a king who was going to go to a foreign country to accept an honor. The people he left behind didn't like him very much, and they sent a delegation after him saying that we do not want to have you for our king. Well, on his return from this journey, he, had, he required an account of those to whom he had given certain gifts. And as for those who had sent the delegation after him rejecting his, his rule, he said, bring them in and execute them in my presence. 
That was very stern, very severe. But his honor as God, as possessing of divine kingly rights, requires it. We are not entitled to disavow Christ as our king. It's true that our modern society has taken quite a shine to that. We think that we can just sort of write him out of the script and everything will be just swell. In fact, that's the idea of the Enlightenment. That to the extent that we have liberated ourselves from the constraints of God's law, then we will have a world of true freedom, lasting peace, and deliriously happy fulfillment. If you think there's merit in that, let's try a little experiment to prove it, to see how valid that is. The next time a state trooper invites you over to the side of the road to discuss your driving performance, why, just say, well, I do not respect your authority, and I don't believe that you have any power over me whatsoever. It won't take you long to realize that, yes, indeed, he does have power over you as you are sitting down to enjoy the delicious repast that will be served tonight down in jail. Power, this power is God's. It is over us to be honored and respected or to be answered to it at the end of time to our eternal remorse. We have no choice in the matter. He is king. And you probably heard a lot of it these days. It's a, an idea that's been floating around, and someone even said, well, it's enshrined in the Constitution that we have in this country a wall of separation between church and state. Do we now? Well, I'll give 50 bucks to anybody who can show me where that's found in the Constitution along with such things as a right to privacy, it's not there. All the writers of the Constitution said, and I can say it in paraphrase, that the legislature will pass no laws giving specific protections or rights to any, any one religion, neither will they restrict the free exercise thereof. It doesn't say anything about entering into any construction project to build a wall between the church and the state. But even if we should harbor such an idea, it's good, it's good to keep one thing in mind. Christ, the one through whom all things were created, and the one over whom all authority is given, identifies himself with his church. If we separate ourselves from the church by a, a wall, then it's not so much what are we putting at a distance, but whom. We are separating ourselves from Christ. When you see this in an individual person, we call that mortal sin. The separation of oneself from God, the breaking of the bond of charity, the death of sanctifying grace, and all of the terrible consequences that that carries because one's intellect is dulled, confused and one's will is weakened so that he can hold hardly ever even determine what is truth and then to act upon it. When in that situation 
is practiced by a larger circle of people, whether it be a family or an entire nation, then disaster is a consequent. The Enlightenment, this separation of man from God, separated man from God's, from the restraint of God's law, from the support and strengthening of God's grace, and from the wisdom of the teaching of his church, the consequences were disaster. That slaughterhouse we refer to as the 20th century stands in clear testimony of what happens when we reject Christ as our King. In following Christ, in acknowledging him as our King over our nation, over our families, over our individual selves, acknowledges his superiority, but it also invites the benefits which he wishes to give the benefits of true peace and happiness, of prosperity, of a genuine and enduring sort. We have, it's not quite in living memory, but we have an example of what was a Catholic kingdom, and that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. It's being brought to our attention once again by the recent beatification of the Emperor Charles who was the last emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he was one of the only Euro leaders in Europe who was trying desperately to end the First World War. He was the ruler of a very polyglot empire, a group of people of vast difference. Under his rule, there were Catholics, there were Eastern Orthodox, there were Muslims. Three groups of people who are mutually antithetical to each other. But through sound Catholic rule, and mind you, he was a daily mass goer, he prayed fervently, and he ruled his kingdom according to Christian principles. With that, he kept this empire together and at peace for many, many years, he and his predecessors. It's a kind of a before and after situation because after the First World War he was deposed and he was exiled. He died on the island of Madeira in the Azores. And thanks be to God, the people there were very kind to him. But what became of his empire? Well, it was broken up. And it then was afforded the opportunity to, to uh, give place to its lower passions. And these groups that were so much different from each other soon degraded into, into a, a conflict and bloodshed. So the peace, instead of being assured by the gentle rule of Christ the King, was brought about by Josip Tito, who ruled brutally as the dictator of Yugoslavia after the Second World War. And then when he fell from power, you have the, the terrible situation we have today where there's conflict and strife, death, bloodshed. So instead of peace being assured by the gentle rule of Christ, peace is assured by the generous application of high explosives. A sort of terrible before and after. Do we want to see what uh, the rule of the reign of Christ the King can bring about if we acknowledge him? There it is. We also have 
what can be expected when we turn away from Christ. To turn away from Christ as our King brings consequences which are inevitable. The last century has a few glaring examples of that. And they themselves were subject to near total destruction. Should we choose to reject Christ, if that indeed is what we have done, then we really can expect no different. So it is, it is our duty to honor Christ in our families and in our nation, to make sure that those who stand in his stead as his vicegerents, his delegates in government, for instance, really do reflect him. Because that's, see, whatever the means is that one acquires governatorial power, whether he's elected to office or not, or he's merely appointed, his power, his authority comes from Christ, whether he realizes it or not. If he does realize it, then he will rule, he will carry out the duties of his office with the mind of Christ. It will be Christ administering and ruling through him. And his subjects can look to him, and though they may find him personally worthy of criticism on occasion, they will still see Christ. And so the rule of law will be given the respect that it should have. When this doesn't happen, then you have a government that, and its authorities, which, well, they crank out laws of a more trivial nature and make make it draconian in its effect so that people acquire a, a, a profound disrespect for law because they do not see Christ in it. Their own authority is thereby undermined. Anyone in authority, whether it be parents, especially the father of a family, whether it be a priest, a bishop, a governor, a president, has his power not because he was elected or appointed, but because he has been given it by Christ, whose representative he is, whether he realizes it or not. And it is to Christ that he will eventually be answerable. So it is our duty as Catholics to honor Christ the King, to further his kingdom in whatever means is available to us, and not to shirk it. Pope Pius XI, when he wrote the encyclical on Christ the King, made it very clear that if we do not aggressively, if we do not energetically promote the kingdom of, of Christ the King, then his enemies will become even more bold in their attacks against it. It is not for us to rest on our laurels and say, well, he's our king, let him do it all for us. No, we have the duty because we are his subjects. The pursuit of peace, of true prosperity and of happiness is something that, that has been gone after with the wrong means for quite a while now because it has been attempted while leaving God out of the script. When you do that, there is no justice. There is only lingering, burning resentments but if we do so in Christ as our King, put his rule into effect, then we can reasonably expect that we and our children and our children's children for many generations 
will have a life which is a happy one, which is a just one, and which will have an enduring peace. This is what our King wills for us. This is what is ours in our honoring, our obedience to and love for Christ.